1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavoured Snapple near you.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello there, and welcome back to New Books and Film, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Jules O'Dwyer, one of the hosts of the channel. And I'm coming to you today from Cambridge in England, and joining me is Rosalind Galt, Professor of Film Studies at King's College London, who's here to talk about her recent book, Alluring Monsters, The Pontianak and Cinemas of Decolonisation, which was recently published by Columbia University Press in November 2021. The Pontianak, a female vampire ghost whose origins stem back to animist traditions, is a politically resonant figure in Malay cultures. In the 1950s, she haunted the screens of late colonial Singapore in a series of popular films that combined appeals to indigenous animism with the effective and political force of the horror genre, films that were very much transnational in their production contexts. While the Pontianak Act would be suppressed for decades owing to state censorship, she'd once again wreak havoc in post-colonial Southeast Asian film and society from the early 2000s onward. In her recent book... Alluring Monsters, Rosalind Galt explores the enduring appeal of the Pontianak, framing her as an ambivalent agent of gender subversion, a pre-colonial figure of disturbance within post-colonial cultures, and a haunting presence that sheds light on a range of questions surrounding race, religion, nationalism, and modernity in Malaysia and Singapore. And if such an expansive framework was not already enough, Galt goes on to articulate what she terms a Pontianak theory of cinema a capacious conceptual framework that invites us to rethink our understanding of anti-colonialist aesthetics and world cinema in the present day. So hello, Rosalind, and it's great to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Jules. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here.
0: So um, to to get things started, I wonder if you might be able to tell me a little bit about yourself, how you found your way towards the discipline of film studies, uh, and indeed how you got working on Southeast Asian film cultures too.
1: Sure. I mean, my background, my undergraduate degree was in film and television studies and English literature from Glasgow Uni. So I was working with film very much from the start. My, my PhD is from modern culture and media at Brown University. And I think both of those departments were really film theory-oriented departments that were very invested in questions of feminist theory, queer theory, and also in thinking about histories of third cinema and, and kind of radical and anti-colonial films. So my intellectual background and my academic formation was was completely um, constructed around those kind of questions of politics and aesthetics. So thinking about my, my kind of long-standing research interests, I've written about a bunch of different things in a way that, that might seem a little bit arbitrary. But I think what what's always connected my my work has been this interest in the histories and politics of aesthetics particularly in relationship to gender, right? So in in my book Pretty and in my co-author book with Carl Scunhover, Queer Cinema and the World, they're both books that are really thinking about relationships between kind of aesthetics, gender, sexuality, and, and how cinema kind of constructs and imagines worlds. So... Thinking about that as a background for this project, it's not that I was an expert in Southeast Asian cinemas, but these are actually questions that are really relevant, I think, to thinking about post-coloniality and um, the horror film in Southeast Asia. The the way I got to this project in a way is very aleatory, like I think many of our research histories are. Um, I have a, a very good friend who's from Singapore and I went to visit him there. And they happened to have an exhibition um, on the, the golden age of uh, Singapore cinema. And I went to the exhibition. I found an entire room dedicated to horror film um, and to particularly these these uniquely Malay monsters that included the Pontian Act. <laughs> okay. And I thought, this is just a, a, this is catnip to me. This is a combination of feminism, gothic, Um, and an area of post-coloniality that's really not very well considered in film studies. And and all of those things together just seemed like a really um, important thing to investigate.
0: Absolutely. And I had no idea, but this idea that there can still be serendipitous encounters with film cultures, I think is something that's really exciting in the the discipline.
1: It doesn't happen very often, right? I mean, I I was so surprised and I thought, you know, this is a major... Um, studio system that I don't know about. And that probably speaks more to my ignorance than to anything else, but it, it certainly hadn't been mentioned in my own film education. So that immediately struck me as something that I wanted to know more about.
0: And that decentering approach is something that I'm sure we'll uh, go on to, to think about in more detail when you elucidate your theory of the Pontianac and what global cinema cultures can learn from that more generally. But maybe to start with an altogether simpler question um, and one that must be on the, the minds of many listeners. Um, could you tell us exactly what a Pontianak is in terms of the origin stories of this kind of folkloric figure and the kind of purchase that it has on the cultural imaginary?
1: Absolutely. Um, so, in basic terms, the Pontianak is an animist pre-Islamic spirit um, or um, hantu, which is the the word for for these spirits in Malay, that was um, associated with, with birth. So oftentimes the Pontianac is born when a woman dies in childbirth. It can also be when, when a woman is killed by a man. And when a woman dies in this violent way, then there is a risk that she will return um, as a Pontianac and oftentimes take revenge by killing men. So um, she's a very... Um, a greatly feared figure in traditional uh, Malay cultures, and and certainly kind of to this day, if you if you ask a Malaysian or a Singaporean um, how they feel about the Pontianak, you will definitely get a response. She's she's a really feared figure. She's also kind of a, a really beloved figure as this figure of of female power and revenge. She has long fingernails to scoop out intestines. So she's a a kind of fabulous figure of feminine horror. And the reason I, as a film scholar, am interested in her is that in the 1950s, she was the star of a a series of extremely popular horror films in the the so-called golden age of Malay cinema. So these films themselves made in the 1950s and 60s, I think are a, a really resonant cultural memory for a lot of um, Malay and Singaporean people. They, they repeat on television. Um, if we think about the way that we might think about hammer horror or you know 1950s horror films in general, they, they retain a kind of cultural resonance and force. But what I realized when kind of thinking about why the pontianak films are so popular, um, what What is it that's kind of resonant about them um, beyond, you know, over and above our interest in the horror genre? Um, I realized that she mediates this whole series of effective relations to this period of decolonization, you know, relationships to gender and women's roles in society around Islam and the relationship between Islam and animist worldviews relationships to national and ethnic identities which are are very kind of culturally fraught in both Singapore and Malaysia ideas about modernity and tradition um and and about the the centrality of of forests and environmental consciousness in Southeast Asia where where a really large sector of the world's rainforests are are to be found in in the Malay peninsula so i think one of the questions i i wanted to to address in the book is is not only Why is the Pontianak significant in Southeast Asian film? But why is the Pontianak significant in in world cinema? These are questions that are not only of kind of area studies relevance. These are are large scale questions, you know, around gender, environmentalism, religion, race. Like these are big scale questions that we're asking more broadly about world cinema.
0: Absolutely. In your book, really, you're trying to trace the figure of the Pontianak Across the medium of cinema, although not actually exclusively cinema, um, but the kind of temporal frame that you're looking at, um, even though you exceed it in many ways as well, is from this late colonial period uh, from the 50s and up to the present day. I think in your filmography, um, I I was having a look and you go up to kind of recent work from 2018. And I was wondering if you could introduce us to your way of thinking about the Pontianic as both a marker of continuity, as you said, um, this kind of... uh, the circulation of this myth um, and its kind of transmission across generations, um, but also as a kind of a marker or an index of change. I wonder if you could talk about the kind of shifting political and allegorical investment um, that the filmmakers that you're, you're working with have kind of placed in this figure um, across time.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think one kind of way to introduce that is this idea of... of um, spirits and ghosts as as obviously problematizing time that that ghosts bring one set one time together with another time and one of my kind of starting points for that and I think one that's really relevant to to thinking about um the the temporality of the films is um you know we have this idea that the Pontianak is a a female vampire and there's there would be a there would be a way of of placing her as kind of an Asian version of a European idea of the vampire. Um, And so one of the things that impressed me the most when I started to study her was uh, the discovery that the Pontianic was one of Bram Stoker's inspirations for Dracula. Bram Stoker was, was reading these kind of colonial, you know, these colonial travel writers who who go to different countries and write these kind of amateur anthropologies or, or just travelogues. And that one of these was one of Stoker's. He didn't, you know, didn't do extensive research. So this isn't one of hundreds of things he read. This is one of three or four texts he read. And so the Pontianak really was um, an inspiration for the most famous European vampire. So there's a way in which colonialism extracts indigenous spirits in order to produce what we think of as the horror genre, right? I mean, you can say the same about the zombie. You can say the same about the genie, right? So, in in terms of of thinking in, in film studies, there was a sort of impetus to decolonize the horror genre in, in thinking about the histories of, of the Pontian Act. So then to go back to your question about the various historicities, the original Studio films were made between 1957 and 1965, which marks the exact period of decolonization in the region. So Malaysia gained independence from the UK in 1957, the year that the first Pontianat film came out. Singapore became independent in 1965, the year that the final one came out. So that's... You know, not enough to prove to a historian what the relationship is, but it's this apparent coincidence definitely seemed like a good starting point for for thinking about, you know, how is the Pontian Act tied to political change? How is she tied to decolonization specifically? And I think I wanted to say that in this original initial period, this is a moment in which telling Malay stories, drawing on on folkloric cultures, becomes a way of articulating in popular form a growing sense of an anti-colonial national identity. You look back to the pre-colonial past, in order to to imagine the shapes and stories that that one would tell for a post colonial future, so that relationship to colonial extraction seemed really relevant to thinking about that initial period. And then, as you pointed out in your introduction, there's really a fallow period um, from the mid seventies till the the kind of late nineties or early two thousands. The, there's a collapse of both the Singapore and Malaysian um, studio systems. They weren't particularly um, successful industries at that point more broadly. Um, but we also see uh, in, in Singapore, uh, Singapore is a majority Chinese country, so Malay cultures um, become very much a minority concern. So if you're looking at Singaporean filmmaking, you're probably looking at Chinese language filmmaking for the most part. Whereas in Malaysia, it's a Malay majority country, but there was a real growth of a, a sort of deliberate policy of Islamization in the nineteen seventies and eighties, which very much discouraged horror films. The sort of representation of the dead was was seen as un-Islamic. So in each of these two countries for different reasons, the the um we didn't see a lot of Malay horror film. And what I think is Particularly interesting then is this resurgence of the Pontianak in 21st century Singapore and Malaysia. And as you mentioned, the book centers film, but it doesn't only look at film because we see the Pontianak um, becoming really popular, yes, in feature films, in um, Netflix films, in series on other streaming platforms, in literature... There are books by um, authors like Charlene Teo and Sandy Tan, which draw on the Pontianak for, for literary fiction. Um, so there's this proliferation of, of uh, Pontianak media, which points to both the, the kind of growth in the film industries in, in those countries, the growth in uh, global horror and Asian horror as a saleable commodity. Um, but again, I would say it also speaks more to the the ability of this figure to navigate questions that are still very contemporary for for post colonial cultures in Southeast Asia. So, how do we think about heritage? How do we imagine the past? Um, how do we reckon with our colonial histories? Um, that reckoning with histories of colonialism plays out really differently in Southeast Asia than it than certainly than how it's playing out in the UK, um, but also differently than in South Asia or Latin America, other post-colonial um, contexts with which film studies is maybe more familiar. Um, so I really wanted to think about what you know, what are the specific questions of post-coloniality in, in Southeast Asia, and I think the Pontian and that kind of speaks to those questions of heritage and identity and, and gender and so forth.
0: In your first chapter, I think you do very attentive and, and and kind of careful historical work of kind of situating this body of filmmaking in its industrial contexts. Could you tell us a bit about who was making these films, who was funding them, and uh, the audience of the original Pontianac films?
1: Sure. This, I mean, this is this was such a fascinating and challenging part of the research for me. I I had hoped to do more um, production history. And I discovered after quite a lot of making connections that there, there had been a an archive, a production archive at Cathay Studios. And it was at some point, I think in the nineteen seventies, just thrown away. The entire studio archive was was discarded. So I had to really switch from from working with um direct production materials to looking um at reception and and working with archives of fan magazines movie magazines um and, and seeing how the films were were written about and talked about which actually proved to be incredibly helpful um so
0: there's almost a kind of spectral conjuring of the kind of uh, the material that that you wanted of which there was no trace or, or, or residue um
1: exactly the, the sort of yeah the spectral archive <laughs> loomed large in in the writing of this book um but What was why I wanted to really get at the production history was because it's an incredibly unusual and fascinating um, mode of production. And and to understand this, maybe I'll just backtrack super quickly in case your listeners are, are not so familiar with the nature of late colonial culture in Singapore, which they're probably not. So it's a fairly complex colonial situation, but in simple terms, Britain colonized Malaya, And there was some special status for territories, including Singapore. So Singapore is not part of Malaya, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll mostly talk about all of the areas together. But in Malaya, uh, there was a a significant Chinese immigration um, in the 19th and 20th centuries. um, And the British worked very well with the Chinese and enabled them to gain um, substantial status as a business class. Um, And in fact, the the major studios, Cathay, Crease and Shaw, um, were, were Chinese owned. Um, They also, the British, um, brought in a large number of Indian immigrants as a labor force. And so Indian people were predominantly um, kind of working class, working on plantations and so forth. Um, And Malay people in colonial times were very much kept to the the lowest social status and were often forced to to work um, on farms in rural areas in in kind of villages that are called kampongs. So there's a real um, racialized class dynamic in Malay colonial society. And this history leads us to a a super fascinating kind of colonial transnational mode of production in which the studios were were Chinese owned, sort of above the line crew were all Chinese. Your your director of photography, your your sound people would be Chinese, often from China. Um, But directors were almost all imported from India. Britain took advantage of the, at this point, already very expansive um, Indian uh, film industry and recruited directors who perhaps couldn't get top line jobs in India um, to come out to Singapore and and work there. So if we imagine the, the camera people and the sound people are all Chinese, the director is Indian, all of the actors are Malay. So these sets had language issues. They were, they were transnational in a way that was completely produced by structures of colonial racism. Um, and there was no common language on set. So this is a very, very unusual mode of production. Um, and one of the things that was, um, that was, I think, new and important about the Pontianak films is that for the first time, they were written by a Malay screenwriter. So they actually were about a Malay cultural figure telling a Malay story rather than an Indian script that was just translated into the Malay language. So that that was a really big difference. So that's the production side. It's already complicated and transnational. On the audience side, Singapore and Malaya um, were multiracial very complicated societies um, but but film viewing was often quite siloed you would go to the chinese cinema or the indian cinema or the malay cinema or the english language cinema the first pontianak film was not only a huge success it was a film that audiences of different races went to and that was massively significant both economically the films were a huge success because they had essentially you know quadrupled their potential audience but also culturally. So there's something about these original films that at the same time, they're more Malay than previous films. They they tell Malay stories. They have a significant um, input of Malay talent. But at the same time, they're more multiracial in their appeal. They're not speaking only to one ethnic group, but they're popular across the whole society. So that combination is, I think, what leads them to be significant above and beyond thinking of the horror film.
0: Mm, I think that's really interesting, um, especially as well that you're you're kind of signposting. Yes, uh, kind of aesthetic cross pollination that we see in film cultures in Southeast Asia of the time, as as drawing on these different uh, labor conditions, uh, but also it leading to a kind of embattled kind of mode of production with no common language. And um, I mean, I must confess, I was I was reading this book while also rereading the work of uh, David E. James. He really talks about how films register. Uh, either textually or kind of allegorically, these kind of extra textual traces of the conditions of their production. And I was wondering if you could think of any instances in Pontinat films um, how they kind of bear the residue of, of this production context um, at the level of aesthetics, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting question. I think it's it's. Um it's a very fraught one in in this context, as, as you can imagine, because most, most of the Malay language films from this era completely excise the existence of other ethnicities within Singapore and Malaya. So there will be no one on screen who is not Malay. You would watch these films and if you wanted to learn about the society from the films, you would imagine this was, you know, a society that had no racial diversity whatsoever. And... That's not true. So there's something quite odd about that. At the same time, it's the Chinese and British studio heads who have created this representational system, right? It doesn't transpose very easily onto kind of racialized histories in the West. Um so one of the things I think you do see in the Pontianak films, and this is not unique to this genre, there are certainly some other films made at the time that, that did include a little bit more racial diversity, but I do think it's it's strikingly something that always happens in the Pontianak films. We see these traces of a multiracial world. So um, in, in Pontianak Guamasang. There is a really important role, small, but important role played by an indigenous man. Um, In a couple of films, including one called Gergesi, there's a Chinese ghost hunter who who is a fascinating figure because certainly to look at, um, this is a very racially stereotypical um, visioning of the Chinese ghost hunter. And it would be extremely easy to look at it today and find it to be horrifically racist, but within the context of the films, there's this discourse in which the Chinese ghost hunter meets um, with the the Malay village head and they talk through an interpreter about how they want to find ghosts of all races and they want to produce harmony and and peace in the village and bring all races together. So there's this you know very kind of on the nose, um, allegory of of racial harmony in these films that that otherwise make kind of very little effort to imagine a multiracial world so there's these little traces that we see but it's always um, it's always pretty minor I mean the the other thing I might say is in terms of in terms of labor something that we might see registered in much more um, ephemeral ways is, one of the, the, my favorite discoveries was that all of these films hired a Malay in the role of first assistant director. And whereas most first ADs are making everything in the set run to time, right? That's a first AD's role conventionally. But in the Malay studio system, the first AD was the cultural translator. They were the one who could speak to the director, but the director quite likely could not speak Malay. And so the director could not direct actors. So the first AD would be the person who would help translate whatever the director wanted, but directly speak to the actors and was in charge of making sure that things were culturally appropriate. So I think we register in the films, maybe in ways that would be hard to pin down um, in modes of performance, in, in modes of speaking, in how uh, the Malay characters express themselves in the world, there's something in there that bears the imprint of this mixed mode of production. And that's a little bit harder to, to put your finger on, but I think it's, it's there within the films.
0: I wonder now if we could turn to Chapter Two, in which you argue that the Pontienac registers anxieties surrounding gender. Um, And the key term that I had when I was reading this uh, this chapter was that of ambivalence. So on the one hand, you note the Pontienac quote embodies patriarchal anxieties around femininity end quote, and this is seen uh, strikingly, no pun intended, in the myth of the nail in the Pontienac's neck. Uh, so she needs to be nailed in order to be tamed and in order to kind of a- acquiesce to, to patriarchal control. Um, that seems obvious in, in in terms of the kind of patriarchal reading. And yet you suggest that this isn't the whole picture. You know, she's also a kind of figure for an unapologetic and kind of untamed political impulse. She, she kind of carries a troubling uh, feminist potentiality as well. I was wondering if you could unpack for us this kind of charged uh, question of gender in the Pontianat film genre.
1: For sure. And and yeah, I mean, the idea of the nail is, you know, perfect example of that sense of ambivalence, right? The, the myth of the nail is that if you, if you hammer a nail into her neck, then the Pontianat looks like a normal woman and she can get married. She can have children. She can live a complete life with no one knowing that she's actually a monster, And if you take the nail out, then she will transform visibly into a a hideous monster and will take on these violent powers. So there's an ambivalence to that in the sense that there are plenty of narratives that end in the violent nailing. Of the female monster, and, and some of these films are are pretty take a lot of patriarchal pleasure in, in this violent act of penetration. Um, but of course, you can also pull nails out. And there are are many films, um, you know, such as Help My Girlfriend is a Pontyan Act, um, by James Lee, which is super fun and I very much recommend it, in which she pulls her own nail out. Uh, whenever she wants to fly and become this badass heroine, so there, there's definitely a sense in which you can you can read you know the nail in its potential for a female agency. But I, I think what I really wanted to do is to try to step out of or beyond that um, fairly familiar Western feminist theory argument mm. about whether. Um, we should think of the kind of monstrous female uh, in terms of patriarchy or feminism. It's obvious that both are involved. But I wanted to kind of go beyond that and think about the Pontian Act not as a a kind of misogynist monster who's susceptible to against-the-grain feminist readings, Mm. but to think that she's always been a feminist figure And that although she may be placed in patriarchal texts, the thing that's really interesting about her is that as a figure, she troubles patriarchal epistemologies and textual systems. So it's not so much about this kind of badass female feminist character, but about reading figurally. So I think the, I mean, if we think about that in terms of the nail, I wanted to argue that the nail in the neck puts into question the status of all women. Right. Mm. Any woman could be a Pontianac, which is to say that any woman might not really be a person. And I, I think that actually raises really interesting questions. And I came to the conclusion that the act feminism is completely tied up to thinking about post-coloniality and, and Southeast Asian feminism, that, that we can't really think about her as a feminist figure separate from thinking about these questions of indigeneity, race, religion, um, land ownership and environment. That, that these anti-colonial qualities are kind of a necessity for, for thinking what, Her feminism means and I think a really good example of that is the very first Pontianak film that was made after the ban in Malaysia which is a film in in Malay it's called Pontianak Haram Sundal Malam its title in English makes almost no sense um it's it's usually it's has different translations but oftentimes it's Pontianak of the tuberose um which is a not very well-known flower um (laughs) But that film made by a woman called Chuhimi Baba was an explicitly feminist reimagining of of Malay cultural heritage and tradition, and it's a feminist film. It was quite controversial at the time, and she had to get—I think she took the script to the censors five times before they passed it. It's very, very controversial. But it it, it wanted to reimagine the Pontianat as um, an intervention into. Uh, Malay and um, and kind of Islamic feminisms. So it's that I think is really central to thinking about how we can get beyond that idea of is she sexist or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's the interesting way if we take a step back and think about you know the history of film studies in relation to the genre of horror, the way in which it moves from rudimentary questions of uh, feminist agency, reading with or against the grain. The argument kind of starts in that kind of territory while kind of moving actually to a, a very kind of nuanced and intersectional understanding of how the feminist valence of the Pontianak and her political resistance is itself kind of reliant on a claim to a Malay identity at a time in which those local identities were under particular pressure. And I guess I'm interested in moving to the next chapter, where you write at greater length about the pre-Islamic origins of the myth of the Pontianak how this too is key to thinking in allegorical terms about questions of race, religion, nationalism and also kind of cultural uh, self-determination. So could you speak about these intersecting themes as they naturally grow out of the arguments surrounding gender?
1: For sure, it 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 was interesting in working on this because it might seem like the, you know, whereas the the kind of questions of gender are self-evidently at play in thinking about this kind of female vampire ghost. Of course, she's a feminist figure or a figure that that asks us to think about gender. By contrast, it might seem like the the kind of racial and ethnic qualities of the Pontian Act are pretty simple and straightforward because she's such a traditional Malay figure. And so at first glance, you might think, well, there's nothing being disturbed there. But actually, I I think she's also extremely disturbing to to dominant modes of of kind of race, ethnicity, and and national identity and religion. Um, I mean, the first big problem that comes up is that the Pontianak is pre-Islamic. Thus, in in, in contemporary Malaysia, the, the Malaysian constitution says that to be Malaysian, you have to be three things, and one of those things is a Muslim. So by that definition, the Pontianak is not Malaysian. There's a there's a built-in tension between Islam and spirit belief, um, and one of the the things I, I wanted to explore in this is that some form of syncretism is necessary to manage this tension, and the films I think are are always negotiating this syncretism between what it is to imagine Malaysian identity or Malay identity, um, both of which are are you know definitionally thought of as Muslim and this pre-Islamic figure. And so, of course, the period of complete censorship is one way of managing this syncretism. You just get rid of it. On, on the other end, there are a couple of texts. Um, there's a film called um, Teenage Pontianat, it's a TV movie, that basically has no religion at all. It's about the relationship between folkloric belief and science. But most most films show up somewhere in between. So, for example, in in Pontianak Haram Sundal Malam, the feminist film I was just talking about, the heroine has been murdered by the abusive man that she won't marry. So she's very much the heroine. And yet there's a scene in which she can't come into the room because there's a Quran in the room. So she's still seen as as being kind of un-Islamic. And there's a bit of a tension in there. Um, but sometimes this is completely played for laughs. There's a a fantastic, essentially a holiday movie, a TV holiday movie called, uh, Pontianak Masi Baraya de Kampung Batu. So it's the Pontianak of Kampung Batu. Um, and the Pontianak in this show are Muslims, but because it's Ramadan, they have to fast from drinking blood. (laughs) So they're having a really hard time not drinking blood. Um, so that syncretism is, is much more kind of cosmopolitan and pleasurable. There's no sense of, you know, terrible difficulty here. It's something that audience. it's a holiday film. It's expected that audiences will enjoy this pleasure. So that kind of tension between, um, between Islam and animism, I think, is really central to the Pontian Act. And the more disruptive and progressive the films are, the more they insist on syncretism. So that sense of a kind of diverse combination of belief systems between older ones, newer ones, animism, Islam, modern science, if all of these things can mix together, that's something that you see in the more progressive films, whereas the more conservative films find it much harder to kind of admit to that uh, combination of belief systems.
0: So We spoke earlier, I think very briefly, about the dynamics of modernization, because we're going from the 1950s through to the present day, and and the dynamics of modernization in a post-independence context in Malaysia this kind of move from the country to the city is underwritten by a set of tensions surrounding modernism and the kind of uneven modernism um, that's kind of played out in explicitly spatial terms. And you spoke earlier about this notion of the the kampung, the countryside, uh, and and the place, both material and also symbolic, that it occupies in the Pontianat film uh, and in national life more generally. This is very much the topic of chapter four of the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about these questions of space and place in a bit more detail I know that they've been key to your long-standing interest in film studies
1: yeah that I have a chapter four really focuses on on the kampong which is essentially the the village and it it really is this place as you say that that refers both to this um colonial history of hardship for malays but it also refers to a a kind of fantasy of pre-colonial traditional ways of life um and i i kind of relate this to to raymond williams's kind of myth of the golden age um and williams talks about the way that um that the golden age is always you know just before the age that we're currently in and the way that modernity creates this idea of a an unchanging tradition right that that Only within modernity do we imagine a traditional way of life that that was completely unchanging. And that's a very powerful fantasy in Malaysia. Um, And it has been a, a fairly reactionary fantasy that the idea of the traditional kampung Similarly to some of the the kind of Brexit fantasies of the traditional English village in the UK, mm. um, this is a fantasy that is centered around racial exclusion, traditional gender roles. Um, it, it's not been it's not been particularly progressive. Um, and so, one of the things that the Act disrupts is that that fantasy of of the conservative golden era. The Ponty- well, the Pontianak is closely connected to the Kampung because she lives in the forest and the forest surrounds the Kampung. Singaporeans will often believe that there are no more Pontianaks in Singapore because there are no more Kampungs. Uh, Singapore is completely modernized. It's all built up. There is no rural space in Singapore. And therefore, many people believe that there can be no more Pontianaks. So she's really linked to this rural space. But if we think about a film like uh, Revenge of the Pontianac, which is uh, the new film by, by Glenn Guay and Gavin Yap, this is a great example of reimagining this kampung fantasy. It begins with a, a wedding in a village, absolutely beautiful spectacle of traditional Malay costume, all of the, the kind of visual um, heritage on screen it's disrupted by the appearance of a spirit but it turns out that the supposedly upright and pious citizen this our main male character who's very handsome and seems like the hero it turns out that he got this woman pregnant and then murdered her to avoid his responsibilities and her revenge involves not just killing him but um, taking revenge on all of the the leaders of the kampung who helped cover up the crime, so it's it's not just a feminist film, but it's a film that wants us to kind of revisit this kind of fantasy of of the village, um, and and I think we we see this uh, repeatedly in the Pontianak film, that, that that kind of fantasy of rural life gets also fractured by the Pontianak as a, a epistemological problem.
0: Mm. Well, that leads me on to the final chapter of the book, uh, which is titled Animism as Form. And here I got the sense precisely that you're talking with real kind of self reflexive acuity about these broader, um, the broader geopolitical stakes about how we, and by we, I mean we scholars situated in the West, do film studies. And you find in Animism and you th- find in the Pontian too a way of thinking otherwise. Um, There was one particular passage that jumped out at me. It's when you discussed Burhan Baki's uh, striking argument that when Western continental theorists uh, evoke the ghost, uh, you might think of the Marxian or the Derridian spectre, this is not derided as a kind of naive animism in the way that a similarly kind of playful invocation of the spirit in Southeast Asian context might be. So there's a kind of discrepancy here that speaks to kind of systems of epistemological valuation whose geopolitical biases are actually very glaring. Um, and you do a wonderful job of teasing out some of these tensions. So I think as as one of the final questions for today, um, I was wondering if you could speak in a bit more detail, um, either in the local context of this chapter, or maybe in terms of film studies more generally, you know, what can film studies take from ideas of animism or this idea of the Pontianak uh, theory, as you articulate it?
1: That that quote I think it was in many ways a starting point for for my thinking on on these exact questions. It, it, I think it's a really useful one to um, to draw out. And you know the way that Burhan talks about uh, the the kind of difference between how people in the West and Asia are are able to think about ghosts, he really kind of prompted me to try and think about how the Pontianak could could enable a theory of cinema and which is to say i didn't want to see the book as kind of aimed only at those working in southeast asian cinema but as a continuation of my theoretical interest in you know how cinematic form negotiates history and i think part of what burhan is saying is that when when derrida talks about ghosts it he's not just talking about you know British culture and Hamlet and he's not just talking about French culture he gets to just be talking about critical theory per se um and I I my aspiration was to be able to do the same with the Pontian Act she there's no reason that that thinking about a Malay ghost should only enable us to speak about Malay cinema why can't that be a, a starting off point for thinking theoretically about cinema in and of itself um so trying to then t- texture what that might mean um malay animism sees everything in the world as equally animate right so there's a spirit that is found in a person in an animal in a tree in a rock um and that's sort of you know there's a long history of how anthropologists have understood and misunderstood animism which i probably don't have time to go into but but one thing that i think is um, more immediately striking for a film audience is how similar that is to the way that film theory has seen cinema as animate, right? So if we think of Epstein or Eisenstein, um, we think of the film screen, everything in the film screen is is animate. Um, animism sees the world as a dynamic field of relations, right? In which life is constantly being remade, rewoven, Um, And I think this idea is quite close to theories of cinema's animacy. So I wanted to take that and think about how Malay animism could offer a method for post-colonial film theory. And I wanted that to be very different from the way that some scholars kind of following on from Bruno Latour have used animism as a kind of universalized theory of of a kind of anti-modernist way of thinking. Um, That's very much not what I'm doing for reasons I possibly don't have time to get into. But I do find that it somewhat romanticizes pre-modern thought as some kind of pure and noble truth about the world. And I actually think Malay animism is useful because it's it's a historical accounting of the world that is predicated on syncretism. I mentioned this before. There's, there's no history of animism in the Malay world that isn't already syncretic, that doesn't include... Sanskrit texts, Hinduism, Buddhism, then Islam. So it's not some kind of pure pre modern truth. It's a historical, philosophical record of cross cultural encounter. And so when I wanted to think about ways to theorize with animism, it was a way, one way of thinking about it, this kind of political, historical way, is is thinking about. You know, what's the value of looking back at the pre-colonial and the pre-Islamic within the post-colonial? Like, why do we want to look back? We can think about pre-modern models of gender equality that might counter colonial and religious oppression. There are modes of syncretism that might be very politically useful. But I also wanted to to place that not wholly within these kind of debates around modernism, anti-secularism, all of these kind of critical theory debates, I also wanted to really locate it in in film studies and to think about how this vision of an animist world um, might change how we read cinematic space. So kind of going back to the question of space, right? In an animist view, there's no reason to privilege figure over ground because meaning resides equally in everything within the frame. So that's very different from colonial models of, Art history, where figure-ground relations are, you know, as we all know, tied up in the colonial gaze, tied up in patriarchal gaze. Um, if you think about every single space in the screen as equally meaningful and equally animate, um, it enabled me to relate this to my my work on the pretty, thinking about decorative art and the way that you might think of the form of of illustrated manuscripts or. The kind of lack of negative space in the jungle. So if you see a Pontianak in the jungle, there's it's very hard to separate figure from ground, and I think that that's a sort of cinematic visualization of a worldview in which the trees are just as important as the people. So I was trying to link animism with anti-colonialism with art history in order to think about, for example, the way the way we shoot trees and forests as as a, a political form. Mm. So, yeah, there's kind of a lot going on in this chapter. I feel like that might have been kind of a, a, a big mix of, of things.
0: Not at all. And this idea of, you know, other people would call it a flat ontology, a kind of more equitably distributed profilmic space, if you want to think about it in cinematic terms, as kind of having a, a kind of ethical potentiality there as well. I think that's something that really strongly comes through there. So my penultimate question for you today is actually more of a practical one. What would you recommend to our listeners who are interested in the Pontinat film? Um, and how readily available are these films?
1: Yeah, it's a real mix. Um, some of the films are very easily available, so I would definitely recommend um, Revenge of the that, which I mentioned. That came out, I think, in 2019, and that's on Netflix. So that's pretty easy to get hold of. Uh, of course, with all of the streaming films, it may depend on where you're located, but um, to the best of my knowledge, it's on Netflix. Um, and then similarly, um, Eric Koo, who you mentioned earlier, he has a series called Folklore, uh, and that's on hbo again that may depend on your territory but folklore is a series um each episode is directed by someone else and each episode is about a different folkloric figure from southeast asia and the episode that he himself directs called nobody is about a and that and is quite fabulous in terms of the older films some of them are available on youtube they're sometimes but not always subtitled um curse of the Pontianac, sumpa Pontianac, i think can be found subtitled and a bunch of the older ones um, are on youtube and it's really a case of looking around to see if you can find a, a semi-decent um possibly subtitled version If you can find it, I really recommend Amanda Nell Yu has a fantastic short called It's Easier to Raise Cattle. Um, And that comes from a Malay proverb, which which ends, it's easier to raise cattle than daughters. So you you can tell (laughs) Mm -hmm. the feminist impetus. And it's a a fairly long short that is absolutely wonderful. It doesn't mention the word Pontianak, but it is absolutely about female friendship and what would happen if the Pontianak was your best friend? And that film screens fairly often at festivals. I've heard people say they saw it at some kind of, with a horror package, you know, so it, it's it's circulating. I don't think it's kind of easy, just straight up available on YouTube, but it might not be too hard to follow up on. And then lastly, there were a lot of much trashier contemporary Malaysian horror films um, that include the word Pontianac in the title. Another good way to tell that it will be a Pontianac film is if it has the word Paku in the title, which means nail. Um, and those, I found them sometimes on DVD, sometimes on VCD, oftentimes on Letterboxd or some other online source. Um, these things come and go. So sometimes you'll find it and sometimes you won't. But I would say those those are the kind of categories, the kind of classier ones that are streaming the old ones on YouTube and um, the trashy ones <laughs> illegally online.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Rosalind, I, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. But finally, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what you're currently working on at the moment or what you might be uh, you know, working on in, in, in the coming years.
1: Um, the coming years is a bit of an uncertainty, but at the moment, um, I'm working on one piece on uh, Matty Diop's film *Atlantics*, oh, wow. um, okay. which is um, a fantastic film if people haven't seen it. But it is also about post-colonial horror. It's about spirit possession, and and it's kind of thinking about the the ways in which we could kind of reimagine. Um, the work of spirit possession in in um, in a post colonial context. Um, so I've got one article I'm working on on that, and another one on a couple of films um, called Kandisha, one of which is French and one of which is Moroccan. So those are also about a, a kind of female um, jinn or spirit figure. So I've been slightly expanding the, the geographical reach of my of my female spirits. <laughs>
0: That sounds really wonderful. Um, And I hope to have you on again in future to discuss your future work. Rosalind, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today and for talking to us about your recent book, which is called Alluring Monsters, The Pontianet and Cinemas of Decolonization, which is out now with Columbia University Press. Take care.
1: Take care. Thanks so much for having me.